0: Good evening, good day everybody. I hope you're doing very well and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Today we discuss very important issues about what's happening around the world, including some of our favorite nations. So let's get to get into that shortly. But before that, I need to greet you all. Who all do we have? We have Mrinal, we have Arnavo, r 2 Nandan, Dan, Bilzerian, Rahul, Rudro, Nihal, Saikiran, Kiran. Kirito Ito, Yuri Bejmanov, Hamburger Baby, 286, Tanmay, Hindutva, Christopher Anthony, Alpha, Pankaj, Shubang, Diablo, Anant, Super Rex, Aryan Sardesai, Free Thinker, Ganesh, the Prime Mover, Manish, Goblet Fire, Bruh, Shubham, Yash, Yasho, Radioactive Cake, Harshad, Abhay, Jasmine, Oblesh, Srishti, jays Amit, Thor Odinson, Haripriya, Vidyarthi, Harbi uh, on Wheels, S2HORI4, Parag, Tanmay, Salil, Shivansh, Trupti, Raghav, Varad, Livo, Debajyoti, Pankaj, Sejal, Shishir, Jason, uh, Mehir, Amrinder, Pratham, Haripriya, Kavit, uh, Mandar, Shubham, Rajput, Radioactive, something Dipto Aryan and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Shao Dog, Bagua Panther, Aninda Raut, the Prime Mover, Dan, Ivak, Ivak, Merci, and uh, Swastik Sudanshu, Rahul Siddhant, Naman Chenoy, Yoda Sudanshu, Revant, and lots of other people. <laughs> good evening, good day to all of you. I hope you're all doing very well, very well, and thank you for joining this live stream. So uh I think we should begin where we should begin. We all know what is the most important and pressing matter that and the most uh, the the biggest question everybody has. So let's get into it. shall we? Let us get into it with question one. This is by multiple people, Manisha, Gopi, Krishna, Ramakrishna, and lots of other people have asked questions to this effect. And the question is, we all notice something weird is happening in china's government and politics can you please explain the matter and your assumption as to what will happen news about xi jinping's life imprisonment is that true you mentioned in one of the episodes there's a possibility of a coup in china is that what's happening there are rumors of xi jinping under house arrest and being overthrown very much in line with your uh, analysis and prediction of a coup against the chinese president if they failed what do you have to say about about these rumors yes right so yes I have uh, spoken about this on various occasions about the uh, potential for a coup in China always being there. And China is a kind of is a kind of uh, nation the kind of society that is, that has that satisfies the preconditions for a coup which we will get into uh, in some time. So China is a nation that will experience coups from time to time that's the way the Chinese communist party is structured in the entire nation the governance all all that is structured. So I did uh, mentioned, I have spoken about this multiple times, that coups are likely in China, right? And there are certain preconditions that need to be met. First of all, the, the, the leader of China, whoever it is, if that person is perceived to have failed at something in a major way and they lose face and they lose the trust of the people, then it's very likely for the for a coup to happen within the Chinese Communist Party itself and that sort of thing. So what's happening in China? Well, something, is, something weird is happening in China. So let, why don't we take a look at what's happening? Let's take a look at uh, the uh, flight situation. What are the other planes still flying over China? So yesterday, I mean, yesterday we had less clarity. On the matter, today we have a little more clarity. I spoke about this yesterday as well. And I said that let's wait for 24 hours and see what's happening. So yesterday we saw that over Beijing there were very few planes flying. Today we see a little, a few more planes around Beijing. The airport, I'm not sure if it has come back to normalcy. But what is this? Let's see what this plane is. Uh China Southern Airlines, we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. It's not mentioned. Uh, We have a Pakistani plane from Xi'an to Beijing. So there you go and what is this one this is from hangzhou to beijing so yes flights seem to have resumed it's not as busy as you would expect to be beijing is one of the uh, one of the nation's most likely the nation's busiest airport one of the busiest airports in the whole world actually and It's clear that even now the situation is not quite normal. Yesterday, there was nothing flying over Beijing, which is incredibly unusual. Even today, there are very few planes, aircraft flying over Beijing. And we also heard these reports of the mass cancellations of thousands of trains and thousands of of, uh, flights as well. So clearly something strange is happening in China or Beijing and so on. That's what we can see, right? So we can see something is wrong. So what are the potential scenarios? Let's talk about the potential scenarios. One scenario is that Mr. Xi Jinping, we know that Mr. Xi Jinping was last seen in public in Samarkand during the SCO summit, which was attended by President Putin, Prime Minister Modi, and various other uh, leaders of the nations that comprise the SCO. So Mr. Xi Jinping was last seen in public in Samarkand. And he left the summit and after that he has not been seen. Uh, Typically, when you are a high-profile person, typically when you are the leader of a nation, the people, the public needs to know exactly what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. If a leader disappears for some time, it makes the nation very uneasy. Remember when we had this prime minister who would not speak, when India had a prime minister who would not speak and would not react to anything, would not appear... In public for days on end. When the 2008 Mumbai attacks happened, the terrorist uh, terrorists who came from Pakistan, the Prime Minister of India responded after about a week or so. Yeah. So when you have a leader like that, it uh, it makes the people feel like like the country is leaderless and rudderless, and it, it uh, does not inspire a great deal of confidence. So Mr. Xi Jinping has not been seen in public for some time, ever since uh, the SCO summit ended, which uh, raises a whole lot of questions because typically he is seen on a day-to-day basis. So what's happening? What are the potential, the possible scenarios of what's happening? One scenario is maybe Mr. Xi Jinping is unwell. You know, he's not a young man. He is in his late 60s or something like that, maybe 69 years old. And he has had a history of uh, health issues, possibly not major issues, but health issues. Yes, he is uh, not very young. He is kind of an overweight person. So that has its uh, health uh, risks. Yes. And when he was first appointed the, the leader of China which was in uh, 2012, if I'm not mistaken, he disappeared for a couple of months for some health treatment. So he has had a history of disappearing from time to time, especially in the very beginning. So one possibility is that he has some health issue which is being uh, taken care of right now. But that does not explain why all the planes have been cancelled, all the, well, the flights have been cancelled, thousands of flights and thousands of trains have been cancelled. Therefore, the possibility, the scenario that Mr. Shijin is unwilling and undergoing some treatment, that scenario looks a little unlikely. Yes. What's the second scenario? The second scenario is that there has indeed been a coup within the Chinese Communist Party. And Mr. Xi Jinping is under under house arrest or or whatever, and somebody else is is, uh, taking over and consolidating power. That is scenario number two. And that's what all the rumors have been about, all over social media, that uh, it looks like uh, Xi Jinping has been put under house arrest and there's a coup, and some other general is going to succeed him and he has taken over the reins of the power and all that. So that's scenario number two that Mr. Xi Jinping has... uh, in, indeed uh, been overthrown. That That is scenario number two. That would uh, kind of explain why so many flights have been cancelled, trains have been cancelled. Because when a coup is done, you want to consolidate power, you don't want people to be moving around, you want everything to stay where it is, while you consolidate all the instruments of power. So that can actually explain what's happening. There has been a coup and Mr. Xi Jinping has been overthrown and that's why he's not visible anymore. He did not attend the various public meetings where he, was, he would typically be, right? So that is scenario number two. There is a third scenario, my dear friends, a third scenario. So now, um, what's what other news has been coming out of China? Mr. Xi Jinping is, is not visible, but certain other things are happening in China. For instance, in October, there's going to be the National Party Congress, the 20th National Party Congress, of the Chinese Communist Party it's going to be in October. So there's a process that, uh, that precedes this Congress. Delegates have to be elected or selected or whatever, right? So the Chinese uh, media outlets have reported that more than 2,200 delegates to the 20th National Party Congress have been elected under the leadership of Xi Jinping. Yeah, that's what I think. Xinhua, the Xinhua news agency, said that the election of the deputies to the twentieth National Congress has been completed. It was completed just recently, right? So each there are electoral units across the country, across the across China. These are all electoral units of the Chinese Communist Party. So these units held various uh, representative meetings or party congresses or whatever they call it, and all these electoral units they they have elected two thousand two hundred plus deputies who will go and attend this 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, right, and this uh, National Congress, the National Communist Party Congress, whatever it's called, it is held once in five years. And the purpose of the National Party Congress of the Communist Party of China, Mm. the purpose is to elect or select or determine the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party for the next five years. Essentially, they are electing a new emperor or selecting a new emperor. So every five years, this National Party Congress meets and it determines the leadership of the CCP, of the Chinese Communist Party, and therefore of China for the next five years. And Mr. Xi Jinping is expected, has been expected, to receive a new, a third five-year term this October, which essentially paves the way for his ascendance to the emperor of China or the paramount leader of China or paramount leader of the party for life. So we have three possibilities. One, he is unwell. That looks very unlikely. Second, there is a coup against him. He has been overthrown. That could explain what we are seeing. Third, nothing is wrong. The third possibility is that there is indeed an internal coup within the Chinese Communist Party. It's a top-down coup. It is instigated by the top leadership of China, which is led by Xi Jinping. This sort of an internal coup is called a purge. What does this mean? Possibly, there is a process being being undertaken right now of purging several high-ranking representatives of the Chinese Communist Party, those who represent threats to Xi Jinping. And we uh, saw it in the news, you know, a couple of very high ranking uh, officials of the Chinese Communist Party, like the uh, deputy, whatever, of defense or whatever. I don't remember the title and the name. Uh, Chinese names, uh, I find them hard to remember. I apologize for that to my Chinese friends who may be watching. But yes, a couple of very high ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party were uh, sentenced to extremely heavy sentences. One person was sentenced to death with a reprieve of two years. Suspended uh, suspended death sentence, suspended by two years. And that that is a very high-ranking person of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's possible that this sort of process is happening at multiple levels, at the high level of the Chinese Communist Party. This is called consolidation of power. That is a kind of coup in which the top dog consolidates power by getting rid of anybody who represents a threat to him. And that could very well explain what we are witnessing. All the trains have been cancelled. Thousands of trains have been cancelled. Thousands of flights have been cancelled. This, in my opinion, is the most likely scenario. Mr. Xi Jinping has not suffered any massive defeat. He has not lost face in any way. He has not uh, let the nation down in any way. What happened in Taiwan was something that would leave a bad taste in the mouth for, for many Chinese people. But overall, the situation has not changed. China has not lost any new territory. China has not suffered a military defeat. Yes, it was kind of a humiliation from the U.S., but that uh, can be swallowed to some extent, right? But there has been no major failure on the on the part of Mr. Xi Jinping that would. Uh, would, that, that would make the people accept a coup or a change in leadership. I am sure they still see Xi Jinping as the most capable leader in the Chinese Communist Party. And therefore, this is my official prognosis, diagnosis or prognostication, whatever you want to call it, of what's happening right now. Most likely, this is a consolidation of power, an internal coup, an internal purge that is being done by Xi Jinping in order to consolidate power further in China. And this is... The prelude to him being appointed for a third five-year term in October, which is next month. So that is what I see happening. Yesterday, there was no clarity on what was going on. Today, we see some patterns emerging and more news emerging out of China about the election of all the representatives, all the delegates to the National Party Congress, thousands of them, 2,200 plus and so on. All of this seems to indicate that there is something indeed going on. The situation in China is not normal but this most likely is a consolidation of power, an internal purge that is being done by Xi Jinping, in 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 the in the prelude to to him being uh, re-elected, re-selected, appointed, or whatever as the essentially as the emperor for life, right? So that is most likely what we are seeing. The most likely there is no coup. Most likely Xi Jinping has not been. Most likely, he has not been overthrown. It doesn't look like that. If I am wrong, it's fine. But this is how I see things going. I do not see him falling from power. I see him actually consolidating power further. So most likely, that's what's happening. Now, obviously, the next few days will tell us exactly how things have gone. If he does reappear in October or before October, we'll know that everything is fine with him. And if something else happens, then eventually the Chinese Communist Party will have to announce uh, if a leadership change has been been, uh, implemented. But most likely, this is most likely an internal coup within the CCP, a purge of high-ranking officials and representatives to make way for Mr. Xi Jinping's reselection or appointment as the paramount leader of China, essentially for life. So that's how I see things going. Okay, Sudip says, uh, yeah, we know what happened, that re- recently reports have come out that he may have been placed under house arrest, uh, and so on and so forth, possibilities of a coup in China. What's your take on this? So I already answered that. Can you predict the consequences of the event for India and the world? How harsh will the next leader be in case a coup succeeds? Okay, so in the scenario, there are two, three different possibilities, different scenarios. One scenario which I find unlikely, but let's take it seriously for hypothetically. Yeah. So let's say an actual coup happens, and let's say someone like Xi Jinping is overthrown and somebody else comes to power. What are the consequences of such an eventuality for India and for the world? Yeah. And how harsh will this new leader be? So when a new leader, when, when somebody overthrows an existing leader, That new leader has to first prove himself or herself. Typically, it's himself and the Chinese Communist Party. So that leader will have to demonstrate to the Chinese Communist Party and to the people of China that he is visibly better than the predecessor. First of all, he will have to make multiple accusations of failure on the person who he has overthrown in order to justify himself coming to power and overthrowing that person. So he will have to say that the Xi Jinping failed in this aspect, in that aspect, and he, he allowed China to be humiliated in this manner by the Americans and by the Indians in this manner or whoever else. He let the country down, uh, humiliated the country, and, and so on and so forth. He has to put out a list of accusations, true or false, whatever, that doesn't matter. A list of accusations have to be made to justify his ascension to power and overthrowing the previous leader. And then he has to rapidly demonstrate that he is better and he will make things right. That typically is can can be a prelude to military activity or warfare or something significantly strong. Yeah, Something that uh, uh, typically someone like Xi Jinping would not do in a haste or in a hurry. So if somebody actually overthrows Xi Jinping, then that person will have to take a belligerent stance against somebody somewhere. Maybe against Taiwan, maybe against India, maybe somewhere else, maybe Japan, maybe somewhere else. Yeah. maybe against the U.S. So against the U.S., they they don't have too many military options open because the U.S. is massively overpowered compared to China, militarily, right? And even economically, the U.S. is still very much the top dog in the world. So the Chinese don't have too many options of... uh, of taking any, any strong measures against the US, right? They can ask their diplomats to go on an all-out offensive, but that's just words, verbal offensive. And they can't take too many trade measures because the US can retaliate. So there is not much they can do against the US. Now, the other options are, they have multiple territorial disputes. They will not right now open anything with Russia because they would like Russia to be on their side for, for the time being. So... Russia is again out of the question. The U.S. is out of the question. Where what does it leave it leave us with? It leaves us with uh, major nations. Three, uh, two major nations. One is India. One is Japan. And of course, the, uh, the Taiwan dispute, which is simmering. Now, again, when it comes to Taiwan, the Americans uh, are very much. Uh, capable of protecting Taiwan and preventing China from uh, invading uh, and and successfully invading. So if the Chinese try an invasion of Taiwan, it's going to end up disastrously, most likely for them. It will be a much worse loss of face and and, and a much bigger humiliation than anything you can accuse Mr. Xi Jinping of having done. So that would be a disaster for for, for the Chinese. So then we are left with India and Japan. So the Chinese could try something against India and Japan and they could try something militarily. Now, when it comes to Japan, they have this dispute over the Senkaku Islands. The Chinese call them the Diaoyu Islands, right? So they could try to make a grab for that. Once again, the Japanese Navy is incredibly strong. The Japanese Navy is more powerful and more lethal than the Indian Navy. Please understand this. Their submarines scare the heebie-jeebies out of the Chinese. The Japanese have the best submarines in the world, bar the American submarines. Very good. Even their even their uh, obsolete submarines are better than anything uh, most nations have right? The Soryu class of various submarines. So the Chinese would be very reluctant to go up against Japan in any kind of uh, thing because that could escalate things beyond uh, what they would like things to go. That leaves us with India. They could try something with India. We know what what, uh, the Chinese... The entire... India-Tibet border boundary is undemarcated and the Chinese always have been pushing, prodding, pushing, prodding, nibbling away territory, trying to nibble away territory, changing the maps and putting Chinese names on Indian places and things like that. So they could possibly try something like, like, like the 1961 or 1962 war with India, a short, sharp, brief war that will give them a very rapid and very small military victory. The, which they would hope for, and then they can tell the, the their, and then the new leader can tell their countrymen that you know this is what we achieved, and we have uh, uh, we we have uh, re-established our our uh, whatever you know our, our status in the world, our uh, that we are a major nation. So they could try something against India. The one of the likely places. Let let's take a look at the map. Right, we should see the map. One of the likely places where the Chinese could uh, indulge in a misadventure against India let's see the map and i will show you where it is i'm sure you all know if you've been watching this channel one of the likely places is the siliguri corridor which is approximately 50 kilometers wide right it is currently a uh, part of west bengal for whatever reason i'm not sure why but the siliguri corridor and sikkim that's uh, one of the uh, geographically uh, thinnest places in india you know very uh, very uh, small corridor and that that can be looked upon as one of the weak points in india's geography and they could try and uh, cut cut uh, you know uh, they could try and uh, control the corridor through a military expansion, and thereby cutting off the the northeast of India, the far east of India, from the rest of the nation. That's what they could try, or they could try something in Arunachal Pradesh to take a uh, take a bite at Tawang, for instance. You know, Tawang monastery is one of the holiest sites in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and that's something the Chinese covet. So they could uh, try and take a bite at Tawang or some other part of the of of Arunachal Pradesh. Or they could try something uh, further in, in the Ladakh region, in the Aksaichan region, which they currently illegally temporarily occupy. So there are multiple places that, where they could indulge in a misadventure, maybe even in Uttarakhand in this region, right? So there are multiple places they can choose from, uh, choose from in order to indulge in a misadventure in, against India. They will calculate where they have the biggest likelihood of succeeding, and they could try something. So that is one possible scenario, right? So if there is indeed a coup the new leader will have no option but to take some very strong action in order to justify his ascension to power and prove to the Chinese people and to the Communist Party that he belongs in the position of the paramount leader of China. So if a new leader comes into play into power, that leader is most likely going to be belligerent and his actions will be substantially harsher than those of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is playing the long game. He wants China to win by 2050 or so, right? He wants China to replace and displace the US as the global sole superpower by 2050 or or thereabouts. So he's playing the long game. A new leader, if he comes into power through a coup, will have to play a very short game and prove very rapidly that he deserves to be the leader. So then you would see an unstable China and, um, you know, unforeseen circumstances could emerge because if they try and uh, they if they try and take bites at indian territory the indians will not just sit down and take it the india is going to fight back and india is very capable of fighting back india overall is economically smaller than China. India's economy is much smaller than China right now temporarily. India's military strength is less than that of China significantly, yes. But if you look at the overall balance in the Himalayan region, India is in, uh, India and China are reasonably well matched. And India has the ability to make China pay a very a extremely heavy price for any misadventure because we have the ultimate weapon. We never want to use that. But if the Chinese cross certain red lines, they're gonna pay the price for that. So again, That could be something that the Chinese would find undesirable unless they are really stupid. So that's what I see happening. These are the possible scenarios. I still feel that the likelihood of a coup having happened in China is significantly low. Most likely what's happening is that Xi Jinping is conducting an internal purge of the Chinese Communist Party, and for that he has gridlocked the country, shut down most of the flights, most of the trains, and until this process is done, no news will come out of China, and this is how efficient and efficacious the Chinese system is, such an enormous country, and no news is coming out of China, we don't know what's happening inside, that's how airtight and watertight their entire system is, no news leaks out that they don't want uh, the rest of the world to know so that is where we are right now. Obviously, the next few days we'll get more information, and let's see if I turn out to be right or if I turn out to be wrong, but this is what I feel. Okay, so uh, I re-uploaded a video today because of what's happening about uh, the possibility of a uh, of a coup being likely in China. Yeah, I said that the China is a nation that uh, that is especially going to be prone to uh, undergoing coups. And lots of people g- get upset about that. There's uh, so two people here, Shreyas and Icon6754. Uh, don't you think the same thing applies to India as well? Why don't you talk about that? And uh, doesn't the per capita GDP argument apply to India as well? India's per capita income is unfortunately less than, the, less than half of China. Yes, certain things apply to India, but does the overall thing to apply to India? See, when, when you say good things about India and you say bad things about China, it somehow makes very some people very upset. I don't know why. Anyhow, let me explain why this does not apply to India. There are three preconditions to a coup. How do I know this? You see this book up here, this pink book here? Can you see that? That is a book called Kudeta. Its author is Dr. Edward Lutwak, who has been on this podcast. I think Dr. Lutwak wrote this book as a very young man, I think in the 1960s. This book, this this one that I have over here, it's a 21st century version of that older book. It's still as relevant today as it was all those years ago, right? So there are three preconditions to a coup happening successfully in a nation. And it will happen successfully only if all three preconditions are satisfied. So what are the three preconditions for a coup? Let's take nations like India, China, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and let's take the U.S. as well. So let's keep these countries in mind. And now now let's talk about the preconditions of a coup. The first precondition out of three is economic backwardness. So when you have economic backwardness in a country, you're going to have other factors that that are emerge out of it. You will have disease, you will have illiteracy, you will have a high birth rate and a high death rate. You will have periodic episodes of hunger, famines or whatever it is, droughts, you know, periodic hunger. You're going to have a huge disparity of income. The majority of the people in a nation will have very low income and they will be marginalized by a very small number of people who hold all the power and who hold all the money. So there's going to be a huge income disparity. 98% of people will, will be subsisting on, let's say, 100 uh, rupees a day or $2 a day, or whatever it is, $1 a day. And the elite, the very small elite, will be living uh, li- lives like millionaires and they will li- be living lives of luxuri- luxury. Do you have that in India? I think India is getting more prosperous. The people, the per capita GDP, GDP is rising. and. The cost of living is low in India. It's not only about the per capita GDP. It's all about the also about the cost of living. So in some nations, the incomes are low and the cost of living is very high. And that is what creates incredible distress in society. In India, the average income is rising year after year. The per capita GDP is rising. And the cost of living throughout most of India is still very, very low. So India is indeed india has some economic backwardness but that is being worked on the, Indi- the nation is rising and there is no marginalization of the m- of the majority by a very small minority like you have in, in any communist society where the politburo very small number of people who run the Communist Party who hold all the power, they also hold all the money and everything else is collectivized and private uh, and, and that sort of thing. China is not following socialism or communism anymore. It is uh, a, a capitalist society, an imperial society, but you do have the marginalization of the, minority, of the majority by a very small minority. So the outcome of economic backwardness is that the social and economic conditions of the nation are such that they confine economic and political participation to a small fraction of the population does that is that precondition satisfied in india in india people are aspirational people's incomes are increasing people are able to consume more buy more things everybody can polit- polit- participate politically everybody votes and everybody can actually stand for election if they want to they have to figure out the right way of doing it but it's possible it's open to all so in india economic and political participation is not confined to a small part, fraction of the population it is not in china it's the the it's the various chinese billionaires who 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 rise to the top because they satisfy certain conditions laid out by the Chinese Communist Party. And so the economic participation is confined to a small fraction. Even the political participation, the true political participation, is confined to a small fraction of the population. So so, uh, the first precondition of economic backwardness and economic and political marginalization is satisfied in China, but not in India. It's also satisfied in Pakistan. It could also... Um, Yeah, it's not satisfied in the US. In the US, everybody can vote and everybody can can, uh, benefit from capitalism. So once again, the US doesn't satisfy it. India doesn't uh, satisfy it. Bangladesh increasingly doesn't satisfy this precondition, but China satisfies it and Pakistan certainly satisfies it. That's why China and Pakistan are prone to coups. What is the second precondition of a coup succeeding? The second precondition is political independence. The, the nation needs to be politically independent. And Dr. lutwak in this book, he speaks about the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. So in the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, the people who participated in this revolution to free Hungary from USSR, they were able to take over the armed forces of the country. They were able to take over the police of the country. They were able to secure all the radio stations and all the communications facilities. They did all that. And yet, the revolution failed. Why did it fail? Because the true power in the country was not in the uh, Hungarian armed forces, not the police, not the radio stations, not the communications facilities. The true power was the presence of the Soviet Red Army inside Hungary and around Hungary. This was a greater source of power to any government that was supported by Moscow than any element within the country. Right. So the control of the Ro- Red Army was in Moscow. Therefore the, therefore, the Hungarian Revolution would have succeeded only if it had been carried out from Moscow, not from Budapest in Hungary. You see so that is the deal about political independence the nation must be substantially politically independent and the influence of external powers foreign powers in its internal political life must be relatively limited you can never have complete political independence and complete non interference from outside inside inside your country but the interference and influence of foreign powers must be substantially limited and less. That is called political independence. So, is India politically independent? More or less India is politically independent, right? So therefore a coup cannot really happen in India. Is Pakistan politically independent? Where there is substantial interference inside Pakistan uh, from external, external factors. The Pakistan army has always been propped up by external actors. First it was the British, then it was the Americans and now it is the Chinese. So Pakistan does satisfy the preconditions of the coup. When it comes to China, you don't have substantial political uh, interference within China. And yet the structure of the Chinese Communist Party is that you will have political interference from within the Chinese Communist Party. And you will always always have these various centers of power that will seek to come up quietly and grab the the power at the right time, especially the so-called People's Liberation Army. That actually can act as a major uh, factor in in chinese politics in india the army is 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 non political in china the army is very political in pakistan also the army is very political in the us the army is not political it it obeys whatever the state tells it to do whatever the president and whoever else runs the thing it obeys them in india the army always obeys the uh, center the the central government in china the army is a major factor it has its own politics in Ch- in pakistan also so that's why Once again, China satisfies the the precondition. Pakistan satisfies the second precondition. India does not. The US does not. Uh, Bangladesh also most likely nowadays does not. Let's see. And the third precondition, the last final precondition of a coup is what Dr. Lutwak calls organic unity, which means that the nation must have a a political center. If there are multiple political centers, these must be uh, organized and structured Politically, not ethnically. Right? If you have a mono... Uh, if you have something that is monolithic, if you have a monolithic nation with only one ethnicity and only one religion or whatever, you want, or, or only one ideology, then all, even if you have multiple centers of political power, these are structured politically, not ethnically or religiously. Right? So in Pakistan, there is only one political center, which is the Pakistani army. There are no other genuine centers of political power. None whatsoever. You have elections, you have state governments, but these are all sham. The real power is just the Pakistani army. There is no other real power. Any prime minister who is currently in power is just a puppet. They do what they are told. Similarly, in China, there is only one political center, the Chinese Communist Party. And whoever runs the Chinese Communist Party is the boss. There are other political centers in various uh, provinces of China, but these are subsidiary these are also Chinese political, uh, Chinese Communist Party centers, and these are all subsidiary to the uh, Politburo. So it has a very clear center of political power. That's why China and Pakistan once again satisfy the preconditions of a coup. In India, we have a central government that is, to many, uh, to to a large extent, in some ways, powerless. When it comes to influencing in the various state governments, India we call it the power of federalism. I think it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's not the it's not a good thing actually to have too much federalism, yeah, because that is a, because the state the central government sometimes is powerless to stop the states from doing certain things. You have a project, I am not naming any state, by the way, please understand this, I'm not naming any specific state. Let's say you have a project of of, uh, uh, constructing a railway corridor from which includes seven states then you have to go through a whole process of buying the land, acquiring the land and constructing everything and so on and so forth. If certain states refuse to cooperate, then you will not be able to build the rail corridor through those three or four states. And then the entire project is ruined, right? That's one example. If you have certain border states that kind of have an open border policy and they allow infiltrators to come in, well, that's again a huge issue. And this is sometimes the central government may not be in a position to stop that from happening because the, unless they want to overthrow the government, uh, put president's rule, in which case the Supreme Court will intervene and and prevent this from happening. So there are so many problems in India. There are so many different centers of power. These are all based on languages. Every state is is based on language, language-based states. You have Maharashtra where you have Marathi, you have Odisha where you have uh, Odia, you have Tamil Nadu which is a Tamil region, you have Karnataka with Kannada speaking people, you you have Punjab with Punjabi speaking people and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. Everything is linguistically based and when you have linguist, uh, linguistic divisions, you people will also perceive that to be ethnic divisions, even though we all Indians are the same people. So India is a chaotic country It doesn't have a political center. A coup can never, ever succeed in India for this precise reason. It's impossible for a coup to succeed in India. The US is not ethnically structured. The US actually does satisfy this particular precondition of a coup, right? India does not. Pakistan does. Single, single religion. Everything else is immaterial. So once again, Pakistan has a political center. It is not structured. Ethnically, it is structured politically. It's just one religion. Everything else is, is unacceptable. Similarly, Bangladesh also satisfies this precondition. And China is just... I mean, the Chinese do have various uh, ethnicities, like the Tibetans, whom they have forcibly amalg- uh, uh, amalgamated. They have the Uyghurs. They have various other ethnicities, like the, like the Thai people in the Yunnan province and the, the Manchu people in, in Manchuria, which is again illegally... Mm-hmm next by China and so on and so forth but there is only one dominant ethnicity which is the Han Chinese and only one language is allowed which is the uh, the um, Mandarin Chinese language right and so on so pa- so China is like a monolithic nation. Other ethnicities exist, other nations, uh, other languages exist, but those are completely marginalized. Only one dominant ethnicity exists, which is the Han Chinese. Only one language is allowed, and only one ideology is allowed, which is the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, whatever is in uh, vogue right now. So China has a very clear political center, and it is completely politically structured. All It is just one ethnicity, which makes it a monolithic, monolithic country. And therefore, China satisfies all three preconditions for a coup. So does Pakistan. India doesn't satisfy any of the preconditions of a coup. The US satisfies maybe one or two preconditions, but not all, and so on. So I hope this detailed exposition of the matter sets this uh, question to rest, that why China is way more predisposed to a coup than most of the nations. And India simply cannot have a coup that can succeed. I hope that answers the question. Thank you very much. Let's move on to the next question. Okay, Arjun and have asked the question uh, about uh, the Cyprus issue. So what are your thoughts on Dr. Shankar raising the Cyprus issue at the UNGA? And what is the Turkey-Cyprus issue? Recently, Dr. S.J. Shankar directly held talks with the Turkish foreign minister and about the Cyprus issue after Erdogan raised the issue of Kashmir in the United Nations General Assembly. All right. So what is the Cyprus issue? The Cyprus issue is something that goes back mm-hmm. a long time. Cyprus is a nation state in, in the Mediterranean region. Let's go and uh, look at the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Map, map, map. So, let's go to the Mediterranean region. Do you know where it is? We know where India is, I hope. Yes, this is India. Go west, west, west. So, now, now we are in the Middle East and go further west and you have uh, the eastern Mediterranean region, right? You have Israel, you have Lebanon, you have Syria, you have uh, Anatolia, which is now Turkey. And south of Anatolia, you have this island called Cyprus. So, this was historically a Greek island. Yeah, it was inhabited by Greeks for uh, for close to... Three thousand or so years, yeah, that's how old Greece is, roughly three thousand years. So Cyprus is, is has historically been a Greek island. Greek people of Greek ethnicity, of Greek language, Greek culture inhabited this island for for a few thousand years, maybe two, three thousand years, right? Uh, so this island came under the occupation of the Ottoman Empire during the time of the Ottoman Empire, which is the last four, five hundred years. Uh, Beginning around the 15th, 16th century, somewhere around there. yeah. So uh, I may have got the dates slightly wrong. Please don't quote me on that. You get the rough idea, right? So uh, Cyprus was under Ottoman occupation. Later, the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century started becoming really, really weak. And uh, eventually, Cyprus was made independent. It became a separate nation. Typically, one thinks of Cyprus as being a Greek uh, nation, but it's it's a, it's an independent nation. It's the Republic of Cyprus. Then, when was this? Was it in the nineteen seventies or somewhere? Uh, most likely in the 1970s, the Turks invaded Cyprus. Now, in Cyprus, because of the Ottoman occupation, you have two distinct uh, ethno-religious groups. One is the uh, traditional ancestral Greek people who have who speak the Greek language, who practice Greek Orthodox Christianity. And uh, yeah, and, and they are Greeks. And in the north part of the island, you have about one third of the population of the entire island that uh, are... Converts to Islam because of the Ottoman occupation of the place. They identify themselves as Turks, and they speak the Turkish language and uh, pra- practice the uh, religion that is uh, prevalent in Turkey, right? Which is Islam. So you had this ethnic issue in in that's left over in many parts of Europe actually because of the Ottoman occupation, right? So in the 1970s, the Turks invaded Cyprus. Right? They invaded Cyprus and they annexed roughly the northern one-third of Cyprus. So if you look at the uh, the map of the island, you can see this weird dashed line, which has actually two dashed lines. And there is a no man's land in between. And you can see the capital of Cyprus, Nicosia, which is bifurcated roughly, roughly bifurcated by this thing. So half of Nicosia is Turkic, Turkish, half of it is Greek. That's a weird thing. And uh, yeah, so that's what happened. The Turks took over uh, at least one-third of the island. They, the Turks occupy this island through military force. And that's what is happening right now. That's what happened in the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember the exact year. Maybe, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to give you a year. You can look it up if you are interested. And then various issues started. The Turkish uh, identifying uh, people of Cyprus, they started you know, the age-old practice practice of kidnapping Greek women and forcibly marrying them off after converting them. The same old thing that was practiced during the Ottoman Empire. There have been, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of cases of this happening over the, over the past few decades. And yeah, so the aggressors are the Turks and the victims are the Greeks, the Greek Cypriots. That is the Cyprus issue. And I think the entire world recognizes this as a Turkish aggression and a forcible Turkish military occupation of a nation that is not Turkish. right? I think most of the world agrees about this. So this is something that Turks have done. This is in contravention of all international law and so on and so forth, but they are holding on to this place because Turkey has is part of NATO and the Americans are willing to look the other way in exchange for Turkish cooperation in other issues right So that is the Cyprus issue. Now these Turks, especially the Mr. Erdogan who fancies himself as the next Ottoman Sultan, uh, Erdogan, Mr. Erdogan is taking uh, Turkey in a direction that is completely is which is diametrically opposite to the vision of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who is Ataturk, the father of the Turks. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk found single-handedly forged this nation of Turkey out of the ruins of World War World War I in world war 1 the turks sided with germany and they were defeated and the nation was broken into pieces it was partitioned into i don't know multiple pieces by the victorious al- european allies and uh, mustafa kemal ataturk refused to accept this he waged a war against multiple opponents including the ottoman sultan and he defeated them all and he carved out an independent nation of turkey yeah and he envisioned a progressive modern secular nation that's what he sought turkey to be yeah so he implemented a whole lot of reforms in turkey including uh, the abolition of various uh, ancient customs like the like the veil and various uh, uh, Arabic uh, influenced dresses. He abolished the the use of the Arabic script for 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 the Turkish language. He introduced a certain version of the Latin script, and he sought to make Turkey a prosperous, modern, progressive, secular nation—secular in the true sense of being. Right. So that's what he sought. Now, and Turkey did very well after that. Obviously, uh, Turkey was under military rule for a very long time. Thanks to uh, thanks to some some. Uh, encouragement from the americans i am sure we can look into that at a certain point time. but ever since mr erdogan took power he has take, he is he has started taking turkey in the direction opposite to what mr what the great mustafa kemal ataturk had envisioned and turkey uh, yeah so there is this internal conflict happening in turkey right now and as a result of his uh, of the direction mr erdogan is taking turkey in he has been consistently supporting pakistan Pakistan. They they uh, try to portray Pakistan and Turkey as blood brothers or whatever you want, you want to call it because of the common religious bond that they have. The majority population of Turkey as well as Pakistan is Sunni Muslim, right? That's what they practice, Sunni Islam. So uh, the Turks on a geopolitical level try to portray Pakistan as their blood brother and the Pakistanis are, they love it. The Pakistan, You know, the problem with Pakistan is that they seek a foreign daddy. Hmm? and the Arabs have distanced themselves from the Pakistanis saying that you Pakistanis are not Arabs we do not recognize you as Arabs so the Pakistanis were in search of a new daddy because they need a foreign daddy they cannot identify as Indians because that would be terrible so now they are trying to identify as Turks yeah and uh, the Turks have kind of encouraged that in in the various Turkish serials which distort history are very popular in Pakistan Pakistan yeah so that's what's happening. So because of their support for Pakistan, the Turks have been at multiple uh, in, on multiple occasions being raising the Kashmir issue and supporting Pakistan over it. So recently, this individual Erdogan, uh, who looks like Gollum but styles himself as the new emperor or new Ottoman caliph sultan of Turkey, he recently uh, apparently raised the Kashmir issue at the UNGA, United Nations General Assembly, right? And that is the background to what this question is about. So in response to that, Dr. S. Jayashankar, who is our chief diplomat, who is our foreign minister, he recently held talks with the foreign minister of Turkey. And at the end of the talks, he announced to the media that he raised the Cyprus issue with his counterpart, with his Turkish counterpart. So the deal is very simple. You're going to raise up the Kashmir issue. We're going to raise up the Cyprus issue. Cyprus, Turkey has no business being in Cyprus. It has nothing to do with them. It is not part of Turkey. It has never been part of Turkey. It was forcibly occupied by the Ottoman Empire for some time, but the people are Greeks, and Turkey simply has no business being there, right? Kashmir, on the other hand, has been part of India for thousands of years. It's an integral part of India's civilization for ten thousand plus years, and you find lots of cultural artifacts in Turkey that prove in in Kashmir that prove this. There, there is no Turkic or Turkish artifact in in Cyprus other than what they've constructed in the past two 300 years in the, during the Ottoman occupation. So that's that's why Cyprus is occupied territory an illegally occupied territory. And if the Turks are gonna try raising the Kashmir issue, we're gonna dredge out the Cyprus issue and we're gonna may, we're gonna speak about it at, at, at all appropriate fora and we're gonna bring the world's attention attention back on this and that's going to cost them diplomatically the Turks. So that is the stance India is taking. This is aggressive diplomacy. This is not the Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy where you become all rude and aggressive and use harsh language and, and uh, harsh body language. This is actually effective diplomacy. You're going to raise Kashmir, we're going to raise Cyprus and we, uh, you, you are the real aggressors in Cyprus. We are not aggressors in Kashmir. So that's the deal. So that's a very simple message that is being sent to Turkey. We are not no longer going to sit back and let you do whatever you want. We're going to retaliate and it's going to cost you. So that's what's happening. And I'm very happy, very glad to see the stance India is now taking. Excellent. Okay, Alka says, the Indian rupee has recently breached the $80 the 80 rupee mark against the US dollar. So one US dollar is now more than $80, right? We'll we'll look into that. So do you sense any significant trouble for the Indian economy? Let's take a look. Uh, I would have loved to see the Deutsche Mark and the French franc and all that, but nowadays it's it's just the Euro. They've destroyed the European uh, various currencies. So let's see where we are at, shall we? What's happening? Yes, we know that the Indian rupee is now uh, worth more than 80 rupees. It's now 81. Let, let, let me put that on the screen. Right? Let's see what the current situation is and let's t- take a, a one-year outlook. So this is something you can see online anywhere. Come on, load up, load up. Where is it? Yeah, yeah, there we go. So this is uh, a chart. There are multiple websites that show you the latest uh, status of any uh, any two currencies. And you can see the chart over a one-year, 10-year, million years, whatever you want to see. So this is the one-year status of the Indian uh, rupee against the US dollar. At Exactly 365 days ago, the Indian rupee was somewhere around 73 rupees to the U.S. dollar. Today, it is at 81.23, right? That is where the Indian rupee is. So, this is an increase of 10.2%. The Indian rupee has become 10.2%. It's increased in, in price. So, the U.S. dollar has gained... 10% against the Indian rupee. Now, let's see other currencies for some proper context, shall we? We only keep on harping about India, but let's see what's happening across the world. And then we will have the uh, appropriate context in which to see the performance of the Indian rupee. Your favorite news channels will only talk about the rupee. Your favorite media commentators or geopolitical analysts or whoever will only talk about the rupee. Let's, Let's see the euro. How is the euro doing? against the US dollar. Let's take a look at the Euro. So one year ago, 365 days ago, the Euro was at 0.85 Euros to $1, right? Today it is at 1.0031, whatever, right? So that is how much the Euro has dropped against the dollar, which is a decrease of 21.6%. Indian rupee, 10%, Euro, 21.6%. Let's look at the pound, shall we? The British pound. Let's look at what's happening to the British pound. The British pound one year ago was 0.73 pounds to $1. Today it is at 0.922222 or whatever to $1 US dollar. That's a drop of 26.3%. The US pound has been annihilated. It's, it's, it's It's at a 50 year low against the US dollar. The euro is at a 30 year low against the US dollar. Let's take a look at some other currencies. Let's take a look at the Canadian and Australian currencies are worthless. I don't care. Let's take a look at the yen. What's happening to the Japanese yen? One year ago, it was at uh, 110, roughly yens against the dollar. Right now, it's at 143 yens against the US dollar. So that is a drop of 31.6%. They have smashed and destroyed the Japanese yen. That's what the Americans have done. Let's take a look at the Chinese, our dear Chinese friends. Where are they? Uh, not the Swiss franc, that's a special currency. Let's look at the Chinese yuan and how the Chinese yuan is faring against the dollar. So one year ago, the yuan was at 6.46 yuans per US dollar. Right now, we are at 7.13 or whatever the current thing is, which is a drop of 10.2%. The Chinese yuan is performing exactly... Like the Indian rupee, 10.2% drop. The other nations, the other currencies have been totally annihilated. The euro is at a 30-year low, 21.6% drop. The British pound is at a 50-year low, 26%, 26 26.3% drop. And the Japanese yen has dropped 31.6%. Let's take a look at one more currency. Yeah? Let's take a look at one more currency. The other currencies are not really important. Let's take a look at the Russian ruble. Oopsie daisy, what happens here? One year ago, it was at 73 rubles per dollar. In uh, in March, it went to uh, 135 point something against the dollar. Today, it is at 57 point something against the dollar. So the ruble has got stronger by 20.5% against the dollar. All other currencies are being destroyed. Not the rupee and in the, in the, in the, in the yuan, but other currencies are being totally annihilated. The ruble is appreciating. Look at that. That's what the Russians have achieved. So in the big picture, this is what the Americans have done. They have tried to destroy all the various currencies in the world. The Indian rupee has dropped only 10%. The Chinese yuan has dropped only 10%. The the euro is at a 30-year low. The the pound, the British pound, is at a 50-year low. The Japanese yen has been annihilated by more than 30%. The ruble is appreciating. So India is doing actually quite well. Please understand this. See things from a bigger perspective. Don't have this narrow vision. All right, the Indian rupee is actually doing well. It is not that badly affected by the various American moves. So what have the Americans been doing? How have they engineered this global collapse? First of all, they have printed gazillions of dollars worth of paper currency. When you flood the market with paper currency, it causes inflation it causes the value of the currency to drop. But then you can always rectify this by increasing interest rates, which certainly make, makes that currency valuable. Because if you buy bonds or whatever in that currency, you're gonna get more interest. So first you flood the market with paper currency, then you raise interest rates. That destroys other currencies. That makes other currencies less valuable. Nobody wants to buy that. So they sell off other currencies, and they buy more dollars. That's how you can manipulate the market basic very 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 uh, you know school level economics so that's what the americans have been doing but india whatever we, we are doing i'm not sure what the indian government is doing from the rbi perspective economic perspective but whatever india is doing it's working india's rupee has, has depreciated by only 10 point something percent 10.2 percent just like the chinese yuan the russian ruble is doing extremely well the Americans are not able to do anything about the ruble because they have pegged the their currency to the price of gold. It's now at the gold standard. Nobody can touch that. The Russian ruble is now a proxy for actual gold. Yep. So that is the situation. I do not sense any significant trouble for the Indian economy. We have to be very careful. We have to be very wary of what the Americans are doing. The Americans are trying to reconfigure the entire world by these are these are these are essentially nuclear measures. You know what they're doing? Flooding the world economy with trillions of dollars of currency notes, paper money, and then increasing interest rates to to make the dollar again more valuable, which destroys other other currencies. That's what they're trying to do. So the Indian rupee is is reasonably steady. It's doing well. Yeah, obviously we've dropped 10% like the Chinese yuan, but not to the extent that other currencies have been totally annihilated. So we are doing okay. But yes, the government will have to keep a very close watch on all American actions, and we have to take appropriate measures to ensure the stability and integrity of our currency and our economy. So, we are we are on the right path. That's what I would say. Okay, Vishal says, the Russian Federation will hold a referenda in the occupied areas of, occupied, liberated Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Okay, in the areas of Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. Does that mean that this was the core territory that Russia wanted to annex? Great question. So let's take a look at at the map, because the map is our best friend. We love the map on this channel. Where's the map? Where is the map. Here is the map. Right, so let's take a look at the Territories that have either been occupied or liberated depending on whom you ask So we have ukraine over here, which will soon. I don't know be called with another name. I don't know So you have Luhansk. Do you see where you Luhansk is this here is Luhansk It's a city and it's also an oblast which is that which is you could you could call it a province or a state Then you have Donetsk which is over here. So this is the Donbass region essentially right then you have the uh, let's zoom in a little bit more you have uh, Come on, zoom. Okay, here we are. You have Kherson, which is north of the Crimea Peninsula, which is already under Russian control. And then you have Zaporizhia, which is over here, which is further north of, uh, northeast of Kherson and west of Donetsk. Right? So this is the overall region that Russia controls, more or less, right now. They also control the Crimea Peninsula. Yes. And they also hold Kherson. So they will be now uh, they may be in the process of doing it right now, holding referendums or referenda in this region. and that is obviously the prelude to an, an official reintegration of these territories with the Republic of Russia. or you could call it annexation, you could call it whatever you want to call it, right So all these uh, these parts of Ukraine will now sooner or later become become officially Russian territory. So the the map in Google will not change because the Americans won't allow that but that's how it's going to be. That's what the ground realities are going to reflect. So what does this mean? Does it mean that this was the core territory the Russians wanted to annex? The Russians obviously wanted to annex this territory first because that's where most of these regions have Russian majority. People who speak Russian as opposed to Ukrainian. People who identify as Rus, Russians, as opposed to Ukraini, Ukrainians, right? So, yes, the Russians did want to uh, uh, annex or, or reintegrate these territories with the uh, Russian nation. So, that's, I think, the first objective. Yeah. So, they're going to soon uh, most likely achieve this. They're going to, some people will call it a sham election, sham referendum. It doesn't matter. The Russians have boots on the ground, they control these territories. Now, they will go through this process, and that will lead to the uh, integration of these territories with Russia. I'm not sure if it is the only objective of the of the Ukraine war of the of the uh, special operation that Russia has done in Ukraine. Uh, I think the actual long term objective is to once and for all. End the threat that Ukraine poses to Russia. Ukraine had the largest land army in in Europe, apart from the Russian army. Their army was stronger than the armies of France and Germany put together. They had an enormous tank force, which is now gone. Right? Their tank force has been decimated. The Americans are now pushing in T, you know, uh, second-hand T-72 uh, tanks into Ukraine because all the Ukrainian tanks have been destroyed. And even those US-given T-72 tanks are also mostly, mostly gone now. And therefore, therefore, now they are being forced to donate older tanks, like T-52 or whatever tanks, to the Ukrainians. Those will also be soon gone. So the Russians are slowly but steadily ending, destroying, annihilating the Ukrainian war machine. It's going to be neutralized once and for all. And if there is any escalation, the Russians can totally devastate Ukraine. Till today, they have not even used the air force. You don't understand how potent the Russian military is. Yes, they are right now uh, mobilizing some, some uh, reservists or conscripts or whatever, which is great. The, the, it doesn't mean that the Russians are desperate. They are mobilizing trained Forces trained soldiers or semi trained soldiers who will be inducted rapidly into the Russian military. Most of these will come in from the uh, from which region of Russia? Uh, the, the Caucasus region of Russia, uh, the Dagestan region, and uh, and what's the other place called? Uh, the Dagestan region, and uh, yeah, the the the, the Crimean uh, sorry, the, the Caucasus region of Russia. Uh, so. That's what they're doing and they they will be able to raise, I don't know, roughly half a million stronger new forces, right? So they they are not desperate. They are doing things systematically in a planned manner. I'm sure this is something they are also planned. So, uh, So I think the Russian long-term objective is to neutralize completely the Ukrainian fighting machine the Ukrainian war machine, the Ukrainian military. The Americans are pushing in arms and ammunition. They are pushing in older and older tanks now because uh, they have run out of tanks to, to give the, U- the Ukrainians unless they start giving them American tanks, which will be of significant escalation. It won't go down well with, with Russia and that will lead to consequences and repercussions. So the Ukrainian military is being slowly eroded and decimated. It will, I don't know, in, in some time, mathematically speaking, it will cease to exist. As a fighting force. The Americans are providing them with various missiles and things. How long does that last? The Russians have clearly been planning for this war for a decade or more. It must have been in in the plans for much longer than that. Maybe ever since Mr. Putin came to power, right? So that's what's happening currently in Ukraine. You see all kinds of reports in the western media that the Russians are losing. They have been saying this from day one. Look at the maps, look at where the Referendums are happening. You can see that that tells you what territories the Russians control. They control at least one fourth of Ukraine. Some battles happen, some territories gained and lost. It's like chess moves. Yeah, look at the overall chess game from start to end, whenever it ends. Don't look at individual chess moves. You know, you may make a big sacrifice in chess, a queen sacrifice. It looks like a disaster, but that actually sometimes helps you if you know what you're doing to win the chess game. So this is a long-term chess game. You know, these moves are done. Tactical moves are done. It doesn't mean anything in the long run, or it may mean something in the long run. So that's what's happening in Ukraine. And let's keep, we will, on this channel, in this program, we're going to keep a long-term eye on the Ukraine conflict, and we're going to keep on speaking about this periodically, as in when something of importance, something of import happens. All right, so that's where we are as of today, my dear friends. Okay, again by Vishal. How will Vladimir Putin cope with his biggest headache, the aging population of Russia? This is a good question. Once again, uh, Russia's population is indeed aging. The the, uh, fertility rates in Russia have dropped way below uh, replacement levels. I'm not sure what the numbers are. You can look it up. But we know that the population is declining. The population is aging. And that is indeed a long-term problem for Russia. You know, They need to do something about this. And we have to ask ourselves, why do do such things happen? Why do certain nations uh, undergo such declines? It typically happens when the cost of living becomes high and the salaries or your income, the median income per individual or per family drops. So when the cost of living is very high and your income doesn't quite support that, it's, it becomes really hard to have more kids because how will you support those kids and their education and everything you would want to give to your children? And that's why some most parents in such situations, they decide to have fewer kids. Some decide not to have kids at all. Yeah see what's happening in, in Japan, see what happened in China. China, it was like state policy, only one child. In Russia, there's no such thing. But what happened in Russia was in the last 30 years was close to a disaster. After the disintegration of the USSR, the Russian economy was deliberately, systematically destroyed by Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin was most likely doing this at the behest of his masters in the West. He was a darling of the Western media and the Western nations, right? For for good reason. He was implementing their policies of destroying the legacy and the economy of the, that the USSR had built over seven or I don't know, I don't know how many decades, you know, close to, seven, close to seven decades, Boris Yeltsin systematically destroyed Russia's great industries and everything the Russians had built up and, and everything the Russian people had saved and, and, and contributed to the economy of the USSR. So because Russia's economy was Almost destroyed, inflation was skyrocketing, the, the prices of daily, everyday basic commodities were skyrocketing. The, the the Russian nation went to close went through close to two decades of absolute misery. And that obviously will have a consequence of people having less children. Now things may be looking better. Now maybe slowly the the birth rate, the fertility rate may rise, but that's gonna take. Time and the impact of these two lost decades is going to be significant, right? So there's the population is aging. The average age is rising. There are fewer births per per fertile woman or whatever the the statistic is. So how does Russia deal with this? The Russians will have to deal with this by, by improving their economy. That's the that's long term view. You improve your economy, you make the median income rise, and you bring the cost of living down, people will automatically start having more children. If people are happier, if the nation is doing well, you automatically have, more, uh, have a higher fertility rate. But obviously, it's not, not going to be like the impoverished nations, where the cost of living is low, and the median income is also low, where you can afford to have 15 kids. Some nations have this, right? So uh, it's not going to be like that. But uh, hopefully it goes above 2.1, which is the replacement rate. But in the short term, what can the Russians do? In Russia, there are certain regions of Russia which have above fertility, uh, above replacement uh, fertility rates, TFR, total fertility rates. Once again, I just now spoke about the Caucasus region. Yes. So uh, the Caucasus region... Whether it is Chechnya, whether it is Dagestan, this region has a significantly high fertility rate, which is significantly, I believe, higher than two point one per woman. So these are the Muslim republics of Russia. These republics right now are providing the bulk of the soldiers that are participating in the uh, in the Ukraine intervention. You know, uh, there have been special uh, detachments that have been raised from Grozny in Chechnya. That have gone and served their nation in the ukraine conflict and uh yeah so if you if you look at a hundred soldiers participating from russia you will have these regions that are currently being over right so uh the birth rates are very good very healthy in in chechnya in Dagestan, in the caucasus region and uh yeah so that's where we are so that could be a solution to the Russian uh, aging population problem, the replacement uh, rate and fertility crisis. And some analysts have projected that in the next 30 to 50 years, by 2050 or so, Mm -hmm. Russia could be about 30% of the Russian population could uh, reside in the Caucasus region. You know? And uh, obviously that will have certain cultural effects and all that, religious effects, but that's how it is. So there are short-term solutions, there are long-term solutions. What Mr. Putin wants to do Well, Mr. Putin is already in his late 60s, early 70s. So he may have, I mean, you know, eventually he will have to hand over power to a successor. Hopefully somebody he elects or selects or the Russian people select, whatever it is, whatever the mechanism is. And most likely it's going to be that next person, the successor's headache in the long run. But right now, Mr. Putin will have to do something about it, which could involve taking steps to ameliorate the economic situation in Russia. That's the deal. Rishabh says, why is America still supporting India to the to be a UNSC, UN Security Council permanent member, even though India opted out of a certain uh, pillar of the IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic uh, Forum? What are your views on Chinese government officials calling out Western media to get their colonial mindset, qu- quoting a post about India-UK GDP comparison? Okay, let me answer the first question. Uh, I'm not sure what the Chinese have said. The Chinese talk about everything, doesn't matter. Uh, Why is the U.S. supporting India uh, for the UNSC permanent membership? Is America supporting India? Uh, A few throwaway words and a few statements do not constitute support. My dear friends, I have been saying this for the past more than a year. Words are meaningless. I don't know why Indians pay so much attention to words. Words are throwaway things. You can say a million words that, and you can go back on your words anytime you want. That's how it works in geopolitics, in politics, in diplomacy. Words are tools to be used and thrown. Some are used tactically, some are used strategically, and some are used in a matter of policy and so on. The Americans make this do this lip service to India. We support India's ascension to a UN Security Council permanent member. Have they taken any actual steps to reform the UNSC? Even One initial step have they taken, they've done no such thing. It's all empty words, no action. No action whatsoever. This US support of India to be a UNSC permanent member is lip service. It's words, empty words. They do not want India to ascend in any way, anywhere. They do not want to make the same mistake with India, which they did with China. They aided and abetted and midwifed China's rise to a global power status. China was at the same level as India, extremely poor economy, an impoverished, broken down nation. The Americans aided and abetted the rise of China to a great power status, not superpower, but great power status, economically and militarily and diplomatically and geopolitically. The Americans made this major mistake. They misunderstood China. They miscalculated. They thought if China becomes prosperous, it will become a democracy. How silly, how stupid were the... Uh, where initially Nixon and uh, what was his minions named? Kissinger, right? And then the UN State Department officials, they made this massive mistake. They will not repeat that mistake with India. They will not allow, they do not seek India to rise. They do not seek to see India rise in any way. They want India to remain where it is today, as a middle power, a middle economy, and a middle uh, military power. And with a small sphere of influence in, in the Indian subcontinent region. That's all they hope India will ever be. If India becomes a permanent member of the UNSC, it's gonna it's gonna catapult India to the great power status. India is still not a great power. India is still a middle power. India is a potential future great power. And the Americans don't want that to happen. They want the world to remain chaotic and they want a bipolar world with China as the bad guy and US as a good guy. They don't want another good guy in India. In India... It's hard to portray India as a bad guy no matter what you do. So India will then become a good guy if India is a major power and they don't want another good guy to be around. So that's the deal. The American whatever support they are giving, that's just lip service. They have taken no actions to reform the UNSC. They have done nothing. So I don't know why people keep believing this. I just don't get it. How many times do I have to say this? Please understand, words are meaningless. Words are empty. Only actions matter. Okay. Vlad the Impeller says, I was wondering if it's possible for that our external affairs minister, Sri S. ji could be the successor of Modi ji in 2029 elections because he's making a lot of noise, noise, noise in geopolitics. He knows how to represent the nation at international platforms. The nation also seems to like him and we don't see any other option other than Yogi ji as the successor to the PM Modi ji. All right. If you are a good diplomat, you're great at talking diplomatically and representing the nation in the international sphere. Does it mean that you will be a good national level politician? Diplomacy is very different from politics. A diplomat can be selected or chosen based on a certain set of skills. Those, that set of skills has nothing to do with being good at politics. You can be a brilliant diplomat. And it doesn't mean they're going to win elections in a, in a national election. Politics is the game of power. It's a game of thrones, like they say. Power is a very mysterious, ephemeral substance. Very few people understand what power what constitutes power? Diplomats understand power. They understand power at global geopolitical scales, and they know how to put forth. A good diplomat knows how to put forth his or her nation's agenda, and, and you know, and and uh, joust and why diplomatically with other nations and their representatives, and engage with the stakeholders and powerful people in, in other nations at various levels. That's what diplomats do. It doesn't mean that a diplomat can come back to his nation or her nation, stand for election in a popular election, and win the support of the masses? Even if they can win an election and become an an MP, does it mean that they will be able to play the political game and garner the support of the entire party? It's very difficult. Diplomacy is a whole different kettle of fish, and politics is a whole different thing. I do not see Dr. S. J. Shankar even trying for this. I don't think that's what Dr. S. Schenker wants. His life's mission is in diplomacy. That's what his core strength is, and he's really good at that. I think he's, right now, as of 2022, uh, the most impactful diplomat in the whole world. Why would he give that up for the the game of politics? It doesn't make sense. Politics is a dirty game. There are allegations, counter-allegations, there is slander. People try to Paint to with various brushes. It's it's a very, it's a whole different kind of thing and not everybody is built for that. Very few people have the thick skin required to succeed in politics and ov- obviously the political skills needed to, you know, play the balancing act and and and, and garner power. It's very, very different. I do not see Dr. Jashankar even wanting to be an actual politician. He's currently an MP from the Rajya Sabha, right? The Rajya Sabha is, is a whole different uh, thing. It's not the... Lok Sabha, which is where the popular elected representatives of the nation go. The Rajya Sabha is a whole different thing. That's a, It's a kind of more of selection than election, you know, if you have the right support from the right political party. So uh, I do not see Dr. S. Jashankar even attempting to be an active politician in the Lok Sabha. I think Dr. S. Jashankar, his life's mission and his, his objective is to serve India, Geopolitically, as India's top diplomat, however long uh, the prime minister and the leadership of the nation would like that to be, and since he's doing is doing is doing a great job, uh, that's good for the nation. What I would also like, and I would hope that Dr. S. Shankar achieves during his tenure is a significant reformation of the Indian Foreign Services of the IFS, Indian Foreign Service. We need to augment the service. We currently have less than 2,000 total diplomats, which is ridiculous considering the kind of engagement India should have with the world. We need to have at least 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 diplomats from a variety of, of, of fields, you know, diplomats who specialize in various sectors of the economy and science and all that, that would be a great thing. So we would like to see that sort of thing happen. That would make India engage effectively and to its true potential with the rest of the world. So we need to see, We would. I would like to see an augmentation of the IFS and hopefully, I, I hope that Dr. Jayashankar can achieve something in that regard. Any kind of reform in any bureaucratic core is going to meet with a lot of resistance. Because if you have uh, 1,700 diplomats and you and you say that we're going to bring in 10,000 more, those 1,700 diplomats, they will feel that their privileged position is going is now going to erode away. It's going to be threatened. So they may try to resist that. Any change is going to be resisted by the internal stakeholders, those who believe that uh, they have certain privileges and they will lose the privilege. So it takes strong leadership to effect any change of this sort i hope that dr s joshankar in, in tandem with uh, prime minister modi will be able to reform the ifs and make it the larger force that india as a nation needs to have and deserves to have so that's what i would like to see i do not see dr s joshankar trying to be an active politician politician and, and try to rise to power i don't i don't see that happening Uh, Gopi Krishna says, Namaste, sir. Namaste, Gopiji. Uh, whenever we talk about Europe in India ties, we focus, on, uh, we focus on the UK, on France and Germany, but not much focus on ties with Italy. What do relations with Italy has to do with India currently? And will Italy be a major player in the current geopolitics? Jai Hind, jai Hind, sir. So what about Italy? What is Italy do to do with geopolitics? Is Italy a major geopolitical? Player. So to understand whether any nation is a major geopolitical player, you have to look at certain factors. Number one, how big is the economy? Italy has a, a small economy, not a very large. How big is the military? Italy military is insignificant. It it has a certain military, but it's it's not it's not something to write home about, right? So economically, nothing. Great, no great progress. Uh, Italy doesn't have that many resources to build a massive economy, right? It, it Economy doesn't have a massive military for, for certain reasons that have something to do with Mussolini and World War II. And most importantly, the Italy government and the Italy constitution could have been written by external actors or have been influenced by external actors which means the English-speaking winners of World War II. And you have to also understand that Italy is also like Germany and Japan under permanent U.S. occupation, which means that Italy is an occupied nation. No matter how nice it looks, there are permanent U.S. military bases on Italian territory since the end of the Second World War, which means Italy is not a free state, which means Italy does not have an independent foreign policy. When you don't have an independent foreign policy, policy you are not an independent geopolitical player so small economy small military uh, occupied by a foreign power and no independent foreign policy that means that italy is insignificant we don't need to take italy very seriously and i apologize to any dear italian friends who are watching i am just telling what i see i have nothing against the people of italy italy was once a great nation it was the roman empire yes Roman empire great empire it held a significant portion of of europe and north africa and parts of the middle east including uh, the the judaic regions and syria and so on and so forth yeah okay uh, even parts of western arabia so up to some extent and so on once great today reduced to nothingness almost nothingness reduced to almost insignificance so italy the italian people are a great people wonderful people they have a great history wonderful culture great uh, landscape great climate great food the tutti frutti and all that yes and great gelato wonderful place but but so when it comes to europe and india ties it's it's with good reason that we don't really talk about italy because this is the situation in Italy. Someday they'll be able to free themselves of the foreign occupation and become independent again. And maybe in the future someday they will have a new Roman empire or whatever, but that's where we are right now. So that is the situation with Italy, nothing significant. And, and when it comes to Italy's relations with India, well, um, not, not not nothing significant that I can think of. Can you think of something? I can't think of anything significant. Um, They did, some Italians did, uh, you know, private citizens, I heard they were indulging in smuggling of artifacts, you know, Indian uh, cultural artifacts out of India, you know, uh, uh, idols, and murtis of gods and goddesses stolen from temples and things like that that was being smuggled into Europe, into the art market via Italy at some point in time. I'm not sure if it's still there. So I'd heard some reports about that. I'm not sure who that was, but that was there. And then you had the very annoying incident where italian marines on an italian warship fired at indian fishermen and killed one or two of them those marines i think they were arrested and i don't know what happened to the case afterwards but yeah so they they seem to have not a very nice attitude when it comes to india so one does uh, see some some patterns like that emerge but uh, overall i like italy a wonderful place uh, nice culture good the music good the food the pizza pasta gelato tutti and so on. And they seem to have some influence on the Americans when it comes to vendettas, in the, the, the gangster movies, and all that. So yeah, good fun place, but geopolitically insignificante. Okay, Vaibov says, Your thoughts, does India urgently need a new national security advisor? What an incredible question. Why would India need a new national security advisor? I think we've got one of the best national security advisors you could ever hope for. Somebody with an incredible track record. Somebody who has done and achieved so much and much of which we may never know or not know for many years because it is still classified. The guy has done so much. He lived undercover in an enemy nation called Pakistan for several years. Right, as an operative, as an intelligence operative, he may have lived undercover in other parts of some of some of our uh, beloved, favorite neighboring countries. Undercover, he understands intelligence. He understands how statecraft works. He understands how national security threats work. He understands things at a much deeper level than we can even imagine. He understands every single threat that India faces internal. And external. Internal and external. All that. Why would we want to replace him with somebody else? Why? Why on earth? I hear certain rumblings from various quarters saying that he is this and he is that. I am very clear about this. Mr. Ajit Duwal is the best NSA we have had in in my memory. Yeah? And you know, do you know what is the number one attribute a successful spy master or a successful nsa should have they should appear harmless they should appear they should be either invisible or they should appear to be completely harmless sometimes they should appear to be confused always give the wrong impression when you are able appear to be you should appear to be unable when you are strong you should appear to be weak when you are capable you should appear to be incapable when you are focused you should appear to be chaotic these are the principles of warfare. These are the principles of statecraft. These are the principles. All geopolitics, all warfare, all statecraft is based on the art of deception. So said Sun Tzu. And so said Vishnu Gupta Chanakya. Before, Sun Tzu. Anyhow, that's how it goes. I think, I don't know what Mr. Ajit Doval is doing, which is a great thing. You should not advertise what you're doing as an NSA. You would never advertise what you're doing. Keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. When you appear in public, make some random statements about various things and don't show the world what you are actually doing. One thing I have noticed over the past seven, eight years or however long it has been is that we don't really know what Mr. Ajit Doval is doing, which is great, which excites me. What is Mr. Ajit Doval up to? And what is the security apparatus up to? I remember in the very initial days of uh, the of, of the NDA government in 2014-2015, there were all these various hackathons in the country. And Mr. Modi also atten- uh, attended some of these. You know, young students, college-level students and all, participating in hackathons, trying to solve difficult hacking problems, coding problems. And then those hackathons kind of disappeared. What was that all about? Was it a talent recruitment scheme for various activities that we should not know about, and so on. So my point is, whatever is happening should be kept under wraps. We have so many problems in India. External enemies, internal enemies, That the threat of the 2.5 front war that um, General Bipin Rawat spoke about, it always looms against us. And we need a very strong and silent and invisible security apparatus to deal with this. And it's best it is kept quiet, right? So, Mr. Ajit Doval does not need to advertise what he is doing. And whoever is speculating that he is whatever, I don't know what people are speculating, I completely disagree with them. I am—I don't know who is saying what. I am not naming anybody or pointing fingers at any specific person. I don't know what's what's being said. I hear that people are saying various things about him. Well, <laughs> I disagree completely. Right. So, that's my view on uh, Mr. Ajit Doval. I think he is the best person for the job and I totally support him. Rahul says, says, you once said that the internal politics of a country determines how it will behave geopolitically. Yes, I have said this. Then will it be right to say that since China is a one-party nation, it seeks a unipolar world. The USA is a two-party state, it seeks a bipolar world. India is a multi-party system, it seeks a multipolar world. If this is true, then how can we say that Russia seeks a multipolar world even though it's a one-party, single-party nation? Incredible, uh, out, um, incredible question. Very interesting insight. I personally had not thought about this. India is a multi-party state. We seek a multipolar world. Uh, China is a one-party nation. It seeks a unipolar world. The US is a two-party state, just one step above a dictatorship. So it seeks a bipolar world. Interesting, interesting, interesting. The French also have a multi-party system. They seek a multipolar world. The Russians, what do they really seek? What do the Russians really seek? Uh, Russia is no longer a great economic power. And Russia is, you know, it may be a one-party state or whatever, it may be a dictatorship for all intents and measures, all, all that, but it is a multi-ethnic nation. Russia is a multi-ethnic nation. You have the Rus people, the Russian origin people, you have the people who uh, identify as Tatars, you have the people of the Caucasus, the Dagestanis, the Chechens, you have uh, various other ethnicities that live in Russia, you have the far east of Russia where you have people of various other people of Turkic ethnicity, you have people who have uh, Aleutian or, or, or Siberian ethnicity and so much more. It's a, it's a mixed bag, it's a melting pot of cultures. It's a, it's a very long, elongated nation across northern Eurasia. So even though it's kind of a one-party state, it's a very multi-ethnic nation. So maybe that's why it seeks its way. And we don't really know in the long run what the long game is. If you if you study the the pronouncements and writings of uh, Mr. Alexander Dugin, whose whose daughter was v- recently very unfortunately assassinated, so if you study his geopolitical writings, he uh, he says that Russia should aspire to create a unified kind of uh, nation that encompasses much of Europe, right? So he essentially says that Russia should conquer many parts of Europe, and maybe not. Other parts of Eurasia, but yeah, so there is a kind of in order to uh, strengthen and secure Russia's long-term national security. So there does seem to be this vision that is quasi-imperialistic, that is certainly expansionistic, right? And Russia does also seek a warm water ports. I, typically, it's it's always coveted Iranian territory, yeah sometimes Turkish territory, and and recently they even thought of Pakistan at some points in time. maybe maybe I think it was Vladimir Zhirinovsky who said that we should invade and conquer Pakistan in order to gain access to the warm seas of the Indian Ocean, and so on. So there is an element of expansionism in Russian geopolitical uh, in the geopolitical output, uh, outlook. Russia, if you look at the past few centuries, Russia has been an expansionist state. So, when you are an expansionist state, then you will possibly have a unipolar worldview, or maybe a bipolar worldview. Multipolar worldview may not be go very well with an expansionist, in a, in a largely expansionist nature. So yeah, it's it's not all set in stone. It is in, maybe this is what you the question is that's being asked here. It's it's a very interesting insight. It may also be a very interesting coincidence. Yeah, I would say that if India becomes very powerful in the future, maybe in fifty years. The the political system could change completely, take a completely one 360-degree one, turn, 180-degree turn, right? That could happen. If India becomes uh, more powerful than China, which is possible, not today, not next week, but in the next 30, 40 years, it's possible. If India plays its cards right. In that case, India may also seek a bipolar or unipolar world. I, anything can happen. Think about someone like Chandragupta Maurya. Did he seek a multipolar world? Absolutely not. Think about someone like Kanishka the Great. Did he seek a multipolar world? No, 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 no. He wanted to conquer the whole world. What did, uh, uh, what's his name? Chandragupta Gupta I of the Gupta Empire seek. He sought continuous expansion. What did uh, what Samudra Gupta seek? He sought continuous expansion. These are not multipolar worldviews. When you are capable... Of conquering the world, you seek a unipolar world. So it all depends on where you are right now. Right now, if you are a middle power, you will want, for now, a multipolar world. Once you ascend to the great power status, you may see a, seek a bipolar world. When you become a superpower, you may want a unipolar world. It depends on what your station and your status is. So that's how I see this. Oh, This is a question from Instagram. For once, I've taken a question from Instagram and I don't remember who it is. But yeah, I think the person who sees it will recognize it. So the question is, were we, Saratan Dharma, or our original Hindu beliefs, were they about keeping the women down just to produce kids and for pleasure? Yeah, were women treated as objects and and as commodities? Was original Hinduism about keeping women down and using women for kids and for for, for producing children and and for... Or was it the Mughal invasion that changed Indian society? Draupadi having five husbands is not looked upon as the same as Lord Venkatesh having uh, two wives, right? So yeah, this is a question I get often. Uh, What was the true status of women in Indian society? I mean, today, if we think about Draupadi, we find it very strange. She had five husbands. How terrible. Oh my goodness. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But uh, a king or a, or a god or, or a deity having multiple wives, it's, it's totally normal and powerful, the course. So how did these attitudes appear in Indian society? We see the whole world from where we are today. What we are today is the result of 1,000 years of foreign occupation. Roughly 1,000 years. First Turkic, then, then various Europeans, especially the, the British. And they remodeled our society to a very large extent. So what was the true original status of women in India society? So the foundational text, cultural uh, text of India and and religious text of India is the Rig Veda, the oldest literature known to humanity, the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda is a collection of hymns divided into, into various sections and books and all that, right? If you examine the hymns of the Rig Veda, you find that there are Rig uh, there are hymns written by more than 20, more than possibly 30 women scholars. Women scholars. What are the names? Lopamudra, who was the, the, the wife of, of uh, Rishi Agastya. You had Lopamudra, you had a lady called Gargi, you had a lady called Maitri, you had a lady called Aditi, Gosha, Anusuya, some of the names I can recall right now. These ladies these great female scholars composed many of the hymns of the rigveda can you think of any cultural or religious text anywhere in the world which is to a large extent composed by women the most sacred the holiest religious text that we have in indian civilization the rigveda it is to a large extent composed by women by women scholars women who rose In the scholarly scale, above 99% of men, maybe 99.9% of men, that's how great they were. That's how accomplished they were. So, more than 20, maybe more than 30 women... uh, uh, composed many of the verses. They contributed to the, to, the, to the verses of the Rig Veda. That's one example of what was the status of women in the very early primordial Indian society. The Rig Veda is, it represents the oldest known stratum of Indian society that goes back many, many, many thousands of years, right? What about other phases of Indian society? So once again, let's go back to the Rig Veda. There was this, uh, this lady warrior, maybe a queen, whose name was Vishpala. She was a warrior. She fought in a battle. She fought wars, right? And she was not simply a commander telling people and men what to do. She fought herself. And how do we know she fought? She lost a leg in a battle. And then she was, she was uh, given a prosthetic leg. This is the first record in human history, the oldest record of, in human history, of a prosthetic limb. So this queen, Vishpala, she fought in a war. She lost a leg and she was able to survive that incident. The bleeding was stanched and she was equipped with a prosthetic leg and she went back and continued the war. Does this in- indicate a society in which women are, are downtrodden? Does, is that what it looks like to you? Right. Then let's go to the, go to the Ramayan era. One of the wives, yes, the king of of, uh, Ayodhya Dasharat had I don't know, three wives, yeah, terrible how how patriarchal three wives, well one of his wives was Kekai who is uh, not a very nice lady, we don't like her very much because of all the political machinations she did Kekai fought in a battle with her husband her husband got injured, she saved his life and she even won the battle for him right and in exchange for this incredible act of bravery and valor the Sharath told her that whatever you want at any point in time in your life if you ask me if you ask me to grant you a wish i will without question grant you whatever you want and she used that in the future uh, to ensure that uh, lord rama was forced into exile by his father right and he lord rama was supposed to be the the crown prince but he was sent into exile by his father and his father had given his word to to his wife that he would honor whatever uh, wish she asked for and that's the pound pound of flesh she extracted and that's why she's one of the villains of the Mahabharata. But this lady fought in a war. She fought in a battle. She was side by side with her husband on the chariot. Her husband got injured, gravely injured. He was unable to continue fighting. She took on the mantle of the warrior she fought she won and she not only won she saved her husband's life that's a warrior lady does that indicate this this indicate a society in which women are downtrodden and all that yeah then you have other examples in, in much much more recent history you have the great solanki queen nayaki devi who defeated the which are, who was it gori ghaznavi i always mix those two up gori and ghaznavi it's like <laughs> okay it was one of these guys I always i always no matter how many times i try to remember memorize i get the two mixed up gori and gaznavi so she defeated one of these two monsters in the battle of Kashadara, kayadara whatever you call it in uh, in southern rajasthan yeah and it's it's the same guy who fought against prithviraj johani first won, lost and then won gori right was it gori most likely gori so Nike devi her she was the queen regent which means that she was uh, ruling the nation or or her kingdom on behalf of her son who was still a minor he was still a child so he was the soon to be king but as, as as long as he was a minor and, and, and not of age she was ruling on his behalf and then there was this invasion from this uh, guy this monster ghori most likely and she led her army into battle and she inflicted a massive defeat upon this Invader, Maharani Naikidevi, Devi, a lady, right? Then you have other uh, examples. Rani Abakka Chauta in in Tulunadu, right? She fought her. She spent her entire life fighting the Portuguese invaders, and she defeated them. She came out on top every time. Great lady, a warrior lady. The Maharani of Jansi. What about her? We know what she did. We know her sacrifice uh, for the nation. She fought the British, and they killed her. So does this look like a, a a culture, a civilization that oppresses women and, and all that. And um, eventually what happened in the past 1,000 years is that a foreign, various foreign influences came into India. And India society was gradually destroyed, distorted. It stopped functioning the way it is supposed to function, that the way it was designed to function. And all kinds of social ills and, and, and problems crept, into society, Indian society, slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually, slowly, steadily, inch by inch, they came into Indian society. Because the society was not able, allowed to function the way it was supposed to function. Right? For instance, you had this tradition. Let's talk about Kalinga, Orissa you had this tradition called the mahari dance tradition mahari the word mahari comes from mahanari great lady so these were ladies who would dance in temples dance was the form of devotion to the gods it was on par with yoga various forms of yoga hatha yoga raja yoga and so on and so forth right and this is something i i, I learned from a lady whom, whom i have had a podcast with which will soon be coming out uh, so uh Later, what happened is that this dance form was corrupted and it was used by the invaders for entertainment. And that's why the perception of society changed. And they started regarding any dance form in which a woman performs as something that is uh, not very nice. Right. And and that's how all these various distortions started creeping up into Indian society. Women were forced to start covering their faces and bodies, which was never the case in Indian society for thousands of years, because the foreign occupiers regarded women as pieces of meat. And that's why it became tradition for women to be shut down, shut away in the the houses just to save uh, their, their integrity and then these these things then became codified in social traditions and that's why you have especially in northern india very oppressive customs when it comes to women it was done for the safety it, it became part of tradition over hundreds of years you know so, so think about it this way when you have a company We know that uh, Steve Jobs founded this Apple company, right? Somewhere in the 1980s or something, whatever date it was, whatever year it was. This company was a brilliant company. It came up with very innovative products. Yeah, The Lisa uh, PC and and it essentially brought personal computing into into the real world. It was a path-breaking company, a brilliant company. It, It was doing very well until there was an internal coup in the company and Steve Jobs was thrown out of his own company and somebody else took over and after they took over for nearly a decade, I don't know how long that phase was but they ran Apple into the ground, Apple, the Apple computer company went nearly bankrupt. Then Steve Jobs comes back, he comes back into the picture and he again revives the fortunes of Apple company, uh, of Apple and today Apple is one of the greatest and largest and most profitable uh, and most valuable companies in the whole world. So that period let's say a decade, whatever it was, let's say a decade that Apple company nearly got destroyed. Who was responsible for the horrible performance of of, of Apple? Was it the employees or was it the leadership? It was the leadership. The leadership destroyed the company through their policies. Similarly, when you have a country like India, a civilization like India, subcontinent, which is ruled by foreigners, and if everything goes wrong in India, whom will you blame, the employees? You mean the citizens or the leadership? The, The oppressors who are ruling the country? Think clearly and logically. You always blame the victims. You always blame the victims. You never look at who has done all this. This is the deal. All right. So India has never been this horrible patriarchal, patriarchal, misogynistic, oppressive society and culture. The way your teachers portray India was the most open and 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 society and and the best society for women, right? Women were were defied. Nowhere else will you see this. So that's the deal and I hope that answers the question, yes? Okay, this is by Havovi Gandhi. Abhijit Chavda, you have a Parsi surname. You have have taken the name of one Parsi family and set them up as an example. Blah, blah, blah. Long, 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 long thing. Um, What is the various... uh, the Sindhyas and the Gayakwars, who are Maharashtrians, buttered up the British. The various Rajasthani rulers' wives smoked and wore French chiffons, were bunchums with the British, each community took advantage for themselves. That's why we had to fight for independence and so on and so forth. And please, please do your research well before you point a finger at a community. Um I don't think I have <laughs> first of all, let's address the question of, <laughs> of my surname being a Parsi surname. When did our Parsi friends uh, uh, escape with their lives from, from Persia and come to India? About 11, 1200 years ago, right after the uh, Arabian occupation of Persia and, and the horrific atrocities they perpetrated on, on, on Persia. Right. Recently, there was a tweet from Dr. Niraj Rai which pointed to a certain uh, study, a scientific study, which says, you know Dr. Neeraj Rai, he's appeared on a podcast in on this channel. He's one of India, one of the world's foremost genetic researchers. Dr. Neeraj Rai. Dr. Neeraj Rai recently, you can look up his Twitter timeline, he's, he's said this recently, they have determined that the Parsis of India, they are genetically closer to the ancient Persians than today's Persian population. What does this mean? It means Persian Persia's today's population is not the same, is not completely descended from the old Persians. A lot of foreign genetics, especially Arabic genetic, Arabian genetics, uh, introgressed into Persia in roughly the past 1,000 years. So the Indian Parsis are much closer to the ancient Persians than today's Persians, which tells you, which I think we all understand the mechanism, the mechanics and dynamics of how the mm-hmm. genetics of Persia must have been changed in the past 1,000 years. Yeah, we all know that. It did not happen to Persians in India. They were not, you know, they were not forced to intermarry with Indians. There was no forcible anything done to them. They were able to live any way they wanted and they were allowed the freedom to do that in India. And we know what happened to them in Persia, right? That's first thing. But when did the Parsis first come to India? About 1200 or so years ago, right? the problem with this uh, statement that this lady havavi gandhi is doing is making is that the, Ch- the the chavda surname is older than that chavdas have are known to have lived in in western india much before the parsi uh, escape into india so that itself demonstrates that this <laughs> this claim is false and this lady havavi gandhi has a gujarati surname gandhi it's not a Parsi surname. <laughs> the what the Parsis did is that after they escaped to India, they took up various Indian surnames, all the local Western Indian surnames, Mehta and uh, I don't know, I, whatever whatever surnames the people had in Gujarat, they acquired these surnames, right? Uh, Gujarat and Western India and all that. Uh, so some of the surnames don't make much sense, like Tata and Baba and all that. Um, the Parsis had many great people, no doubt about that, but. That happened because India was magnanimous enough to give them shelter when nobody else was willing to give them shelter, right? And for the longest time, the Parsis were just an ordinary community in India, but when the British took over the Parsis suddenly shot the Parsis suddenly shot to prominence, and they started suddenly becoming superstars. Why? Because the British singled out the Parsis for preferential treatment. The British had this policy of divide and rule, and they singled out the Parsi community, this tiny Parsi community for preferential treatment. They gave them all the privileges that they would not give to the rest of the the, the Indian communities. And that's why the Parsis suddenly became mega rich, industrialists and whatnot, right? And we also know the Parsi role in in opium smuggling and drug smuggling, which was done on the behest of uh, Victoria, Queen Victoria. We know the Parsi participation, the, the the participation of various Parsi merchants and traders in the the opium oppression in China. We know all that. It's all a matter of record. Look it up. Look it up. Right? And that's why I said that the Parsis were given preferential treatment and that's why they became so, so dominant and all that. And all their wealth is thanks to this British preferential treatment. Otherwise, they are no different from any other Indian community. Especially, I would say that the people of uh the, the so so-called Banya people of Rajasthan, the Marwaris, etc., et even of Gujarat, these people have entrepreneurship in the blood. If they had been given the same privileges as the parsis, they would have transformed the whole, whole world, right? But that did not happen. So that is a thing. Now, obviously, some parsis have contributed something good to, to the country. We have the Tatas in the uh, whatever, yeah, whoever else. We we also have the example of, what's his name? Uh, Sam Manekshaw, who uh, was one of the uh, major uh, participants in the Bangladesh Liberation War. Well, please, let's understand this. If Sam Manekshaw wasn't there, if somebody else was in his place, the same result would have been accomplished. It's not like Indians are less capable than Parsis. People forget the name of Lieutenant general Sagat Singh Rathore. He is one of the unsung heroes of the 1971 Bangladesh Liberation War. Nobody speaks about it much. And he is also one of the unsung heroes of the 1967 victory of India against China. Nobody even knows that India and China went to war in 1967 because your journalists and your favorite history teachers will not tell you this. India and China fought a war in 1967 and the Chinese were defeated. And one of the heroes of that Indian victory was Lieutenant General Sagat Singh Rathor who also was instrumental in ensuring the Indian victory in 1971. But all the credit goes to Sam Manekshaw. Do you know what Lieutenant General Sagat Singh Rathor looked like? Let me see. 1971 uh, surrender. Pakistan surrender. Let's see. Let's see the picture. Let me put that on the screen, shall we? And let me show you what Lieutenant General Sagat Singh Rathore looked like. Uh, Where's the image? Let's put an image on the screen. So if you see, uh, where's the image? Let's take this one, for instance. So over here, you see that a Pakistani fellow, Niazi, with the pen in his hand. You go right above him. You have this gentleman in this olive green shirt, uh, which is second from right. That is Lieutenant General Sagat Singh Rathore, one of the great warriors India has produced. So let's not try to attribute everything to one individual. 1971 was a collective victory; many people participated in that. And it, for some reason, we try we overemphasize the role of uh, one individual. I am not saying that uh, that Sam Manekshaw was not a great soldier. Obviously, he was a great soldier. He was one of India's greatest soldiers, one of India's greatest military leaders. But if Sam Manekshaw show wasn't there, many other leaders, many other soldiers, generals could have taken up the role, same role, and they would have accomplished the same result, if not a better result. So let's not try to defy a certain community who have greatly benefited from the preferential treatment given to them through no fault of their own by India's foreign occupiers. Parsis are a wonderful people. I like the Parsis. I don't have anything against the Parsis. I am just stating historical facts. So let's not get all riled up and emotional about this. I'm sure Havovi Gandhi is a very nice lady with a Gujarati surname. <laughs> you know, nothing against anybody. I'm just stating historical facts. We have to understand how Indian society ended up the way it is today. How did some people end up so rich? Any person who was... M- who was very rich in 1947 became rich only through the, treat, the preferential treatment given to them by the British. You could not become rich in British occupied India unless you served the British. Please understand that. And this doesn't apply only to the Parsis. This also applies to various other industrialists who became monumentally rich during British rule. Can you think of any? Homework Homework karo. Go on. Find it out. Okay, I have so many questions today that I was not able to answer. Let me, I I apologize to all. I had taken so many more, but I think we have almost reached the end of today's thing. So, as is uh, our traditional custom, let me take some questions from the live chat. From the live chat. Uh, Why is this Habibi thing going on? (laughs) Habibi Gandhi. Ah, some interesting names come up. Going cars and Birla's, uh, who else, uh, Tata's we know, we know Tata's, Cyrus, Cyrus we know, Cyrus, uh, whoever Cyrus, uh, the Tata's we know, Tata's are there, uh, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, many of these uh, industrialists who became industrialists or whatever, they did so because the British gave them special privileges. All right. Um... Uh, Let's take some other questions now from the um from the, the, the live chat. Akshay Kumar. Oh, nice to have a Bollywood influence here. Uh the late <laughs> the late General Bipin Singh Rawat said that India has to be prepared for a 2.5 front war. Is the NIA crackdown on, on PFI, the 0.5 front war? So you know the NIA and and whatever it does it, is is sometimes visible, mostly it is invisible. And whatever they're doing is obviously to secure India's national interest internally and externally. So I cannot be sure exactly what is happening. Uh, There are reports in the past few days of some crackdown happening on certain organizations. It could be part of that. It could be part of something else. We don't quite know. But I think the NIA is doing well. And I think we have to be constantly on our toes and constantly prepared for the 2.5 front war, especially the 0.5 internal... Angle that General Bipin Rawat spoke about. Yes. Uh, okay. Swayez says, As we know, Pakistan is dealing with massive flooding. On this, can you spoke, speak about the Indus River Treaty and how and why these rivers can strategically be important for India in time of war? The Indus River Treaty was something that was uh, done between India and Pakistan during the 1960s, 1950s, somewhere there under the auspicious leadership of the magnificent, monumental, and magnanimous Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji. So, in according to this treaty, which was brokered by the IMF or the World Bank, most likely the World Bank, according to this treaty, India gave up 80% of the waters of the Indus, of the, Saras, of the Saptasindhu region to Pakistan, India can only use 20%, the rest is all for Pakistan. I don't know why, this is the most incredibly lopsided treaty in, in human history most likely. Even when you are defeated by a foreign power, you don't get such a lopsided treaty. So that's what India accepted under the auspicious, magnificent, galactic leadership of Shri Nehruji. So that's the Indus River Treaty. Now India is under no obligation to uh, keep uh, accepting a treaty that is not in its favor. The Americans have demonstrated numerous times that they can walk away from a treaty. The Iran nuclear deal, they had signed, it was all officially done, but they walked away from it under President Trump. The Chinese had this deal with the UK about Hong Kong. One nation two systems, that sort of thing. They walked away from the from the treaty. They said it's no longer uh, legitimate or acceptable and we no longer recognize it. So you can always walk back, walk away from a treaty, even though you may have signed it. And this was, this was signed such a long time ago. So, if India was to reclaim the waters and say, okay, we no longer recognize the treaty, you can go to hell. Can India do that? India can do that. But is, is India in a position to do that? To be able... To withhold those waters from Pakistan, you need infrastructure on the rivers in the Indian regions where the rivers flow. In the Indian territory, you need to build multiple dams and reservoirs and canals. You need to build this massive infrastructure to be able to do this at a moment's notice. And then you also need to to have fortifications and air defenses and other defenses to ward off any Pakistani military threat to the infrastructure you've created. Have we even started doing this? We have not started doing this. Which means that we are not in a position to strategically use the waters against Pakistan. If we make any statements, it's empty words. What does that mean? We know that the current... Uh, oh my God. Sir, 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 you don't have to say sorry. I have the utmost and most magnificent respect for you, sir. I'm, I'm so blessed that you have made an appearance here. Thank you very much. Anyhow, Pakistan. So the current government has a significantly harder stra- stance against Pakistan, right? We know we have seen actions: the Balakot thing, the surgical strikes, and, and various other things. The Prime Minister of India has shown conciliatory measures against Pakistan. He has uh, uh, he visited uh, Mr. Nawaz Sharif uh, for his granddaughter's wedding. He went there with a with a gift and blessed the girl and all that. So India tried. To, to make friends with Pakistan. But the Pakistanis they kept on doing terrorism and then they had to be punished appropriately. So this government has a hardline stance against Pakistan. This government will not compromise with India's national interest when it comes to Pakistan or anybody else. So why is this government not building dam infrastructure and other water infrastructure on the rivers so that we can walk away from the 1971 treaty, uh, from the from the Indus Waters Treaty. Most likely it is because Pakistan is a temporary nation, and when Pakistan is no longer a thing, then we don't need any such infrastructure. Think about that. Okay. Alright, so, <laughs> so that's, that's what I think. That's what I think, what's going on. Alright. Um, okay, any other questions? Let me see one or two other questions, if we have any interesting questions. Um... Uh, Abhinav says would the northeast have been a part of India if the British never colonized us the north the far east of India is not some other part of the world if the British had not colonized us then Bangladesh would have been part of India they partitioned Bengal Bangladesh would never have been a thing Bangladesh was independent was a separate country from 1947 to 1971 it was part of Pakistan just how many years is that 24 years whatever the number is yeah yeah and we could have reintegrated it, but, you know, so Bangladesh itself would not have been a separate country. Pakistan would not even have existed. And when it comes to other parts of Southeast Asia, they may or may not have been part of India, but they would certainly have been part of Indian civilization. We would have much closer ties with nations like Burma, with Thailand, with Laos, with Cambodia, with Vietnam, with Indonesia, Malaysia, and so on and so forth, if the British had not colonized us. right? And the Northeast would very much have been part of that. It could have been a part of India. I think the Northeast, you know why it looks so different today? It's because of the Christianization of the, of the Northeast, which was done actually after independence, the bulk of it. It was done under the magnificent and most gracious auspicious of auspices of His Grace, the Holiness, Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji, who prohibited the entry of any Hindu uh, religious person into the Northeast, but he facilitated the mass industrial scale conversion of other people of Nagaland and other, other places to Christianity via American missionaries. So that's why today the culture is so different. Otherwise, the, the people of Nagaland who had the traditional animistic and other beliefs, they could have regarded themselves as Hindus. There are certain Naga people uh, who belong to certain uh, so-called Naga tribes who practice Hinduism. In, in the state of Manipur. So, you know, Northeast would definitely have been a part of India. The British colonization did a lot of destruction when it comes to India. They did not do anything good for India in any way whatsoever. It's not like the Northeast is a gift of the British to India. What nonsense. It's not the same. It's not the, it's not the case at all. Parts of Burma, which are currently part of Burma, would have been part of India. The Kabo Valley, which has historically belonged to Manipur. Mr. Nehru gave it up to Burma. It was it was taken by Burma on lease from the kingdom of Manipur. It was still Manipur territory. It was still Indian territory. Mr. Nehru just gave it up. This is the kind of, um, the great Mr. Nehru. So, you know, British occupation and its result, which was Mr. Nehru and various other leaders, they did more harm to India than any good at all. So yeah, that is where we are. And I think we will end today's session over here. Thank you very much to everybody for your questions. This was a very interesting episode, as always. Very good questions. So uh, we're going to end it here. Thank you very much to everybody. And next weekend, I will not be doing live streams because unfortunately I'm traveling. But I will make sure to put something up interesting on the channel around that time. So I will see you as soon as is humanly possible, very soon in the in the meanwhile take care of yourselves keep moving forward raise your standards and let's conquer the world <laughs> take care bye bye